0: Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM online. If, just in case you uh, happen to uh, want to listen to it online, you can check it out live, or you can listen to previous episodes of Wrestling Memories Then and Now on our website, radionorthland.org. If you want to listen to it live by your cell phone, pick up that free app from TuneIn. Okay, with all of that out of the way, all that important information, hi, I'm Glenn Broggett, sitting here uh, this week flying solo. Uh, yes, the grizzled veteran Michael McCurdy is out on assignment and he promises, uh, he's going to be bringing back a nice guest for us for an upcoming edition of wrestling memories then and now. So that means I get to, uh, sit in the chair this week, fly solo, whatever you want to refer to it as. And I have uh, found a real interesting guest. Uh, we're going to talk and it's been a few months now since I've, uh, had uh, somebody on the program to discuss uh, the Universal Wrestling Federation, of course, the Herb Abrams version of the UWF. And uh, my guest uh, is an author. He's been working on a project about the history of the Universal Wrestling Federation and Herb Abrams. And uh, uh, if there was ever an interesting character in professional wrestling, and let me tell you, there's a lot of interesting characters throughout the years, throughout the decades... Herb Abrams would definitely be uh, in that category. Uh, yeah, he was a—he uh, lived a very colorful life, and he uh, died a very colorful death. But we're going to talk about some of uh, about Herb Abrams. We're going to talk about the UWF. We're going to talk about the ups, the downs, about putting together such a project uh, like a book about the life and, of course, the Federation. I'm going to bring him on. Mr. Jonathan Plombon, did I get that, that last name right, Judge John? Uh, welcome to Wrestling Memories. By the way, we're going to talk about your book, but uh, what is that? How, 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 how did I get the pronunciation right?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what you say.
0: All right, uh, but yes, thank you for uh, taking some time out here uh, to uh, stop by and, and talk about uh, the UWF, your book that you've been working on, uh, some of the things uh, you've been able to, uh, you know, get together th- so far with the book. But, yeah, it's uh, very, very interesting to have another guest on who's not necessarily uh, spent time in the ring or anything, but just a guy who has a passion and is uh, following his passion with, with his book project. So uh, I'm definitely interested in, in talking UWF with you.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to discuss it with everyone.
0: Okay, uh, so I want to first talk about yourself here, get a little background information. Uh, uh, it looks to be uh, that you, like myself, are, are you know Minnesota guys from different parts of the state. Let's talk a little bit about your background and how you uh, you know, ended up here writing this book about Herb Abrams, uh, about did you watch pro wrestling growing up? But first of all, tell everybody a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, well, I went to uh, St. Claude State University in Minnesota. Um, and graduated with a degree in creative writing, uh, English. And from there, I didn't really know what to do with that degree. Um, so I basically just started doing freelance uh, writing, and I, you know, I wrote a number of pieces about uh, professional wrestling for various sort of publications, a lot of smaller ones. Um, the biggest one was probably uh, for Instinct Magazine, which was pretty big, but that was a long time ago, um, where I wrote about openly gay professional wrestlers, Um, but eventually there just became a time when I admired so many of the books that were out there, and I've read so many wrestling books, and I decided that I just really wanted to write one, and when I came down to thinking of ideas, the first one that always came to mind, the most interesting one that came to mind was obviously Herb Abrams from all the stories that were online, and I... I had watched the UWF as a kid. Um, I'd watched, when I was younger, I watched everything. I watched WCW, WWF, Global, that was on ESPN. And the one that really stood out for me was the UWF, just because the shows were so different. Um, they were in a number of different places they were held. You know, and it seemed like in, like, lobbies of hotels and and, you know, these, these strange places, and that always kept with me And when I got a little bit older and started looking up information. I started seeing that there was such a weird story behind the UWF, and I just really wanted to kind of pursue that. And also at the same time, it seemed like a lot of people had sort of turned Herb Abrams into an, either a comedic uh, person or, or sort of a comic book character or, or a villain, and I, I was really interested in sort of Looking and trying to find the sort of the the, the sort of the positive stories of Herb Abrams and, and try to show them in a different light. Now, I'm not completely trying to portray him as a sort of angel, but at the same time, I think everyone has a, a couple of different sides, and it's been interesting trying to uh, find those stories out.
0: Yeah, and he's been such a fascinating, uh, you know, character, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, as far as pro wrestling goes. And again, it it is uh, one of those things where we uh, as fans, you know, and guys who who may follow it a little bit more than just watching it on TV in regards to the history, uh, you know, a lot of what we've heard through the years about Herb Abrams was, you know. He was this wild man, you know. We they talked about, you know, when he he was high on cocaine when they found him. He was naked, uh, he partying, and he had this lifestyle. But then we also have to kind of just take a step back and, and figure out what where did he what was his story? How did he make it into the wrestling business? Where did he get his money? How did he find his initial success? So I mean, we by doing this and and by you finding more research, it's a good way of peeling back and going just beyond that that caricature and that that you know that, that somehow. We, we just keep uh, envisioning when we do think of Herb Abrams. It's all the uh, the, uh, the the pomp and circumstance when there really has a lot more inf- things to to discover about the man and how he got to that to 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 that point.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 weird to kind of hear some of the the sort of the positive stories, the stories about him giving to charity and his sort of his his sort of I don't know. His, he had sort of a soft spot for children too, and he would go to these sort of hospitals sometimes and, and sort of bring wrestlers with him. And a lot of that stuff just hasn't been reported. Um, so it's... it's At the same time, there's... All those drug stories that you hear, some of them are sort of inflated and some of them are absolutely true. But at the same time, like I said before, you, you there's another side of him that may have been sort of covered up, um, changed. His behavior was changed just because... Of all the drugs he was taking at the you know different times in his life.
0: Now, when you were looking for information about her, who were some of the sources that have been proven to be just really a, a good good person to to get some of this stuff? Who have you talked uh, with, and who have, you know in regards to to her uh, with this this book project of yours?
1: Well, you know, I've been trying to find like I my sort of uh, idea or my perspective was always to just try to find anyone I will talk to anyone who had any sort of connection to the UWF and I'll just um sort of you know place those stories and in, in those interviews and try to figure out which ones are the most important um at the same time I've you know I've followed, I've talked to people like Brian Blair and Steve Welping Ray and Sonny Beach was actually the first person that I ever uh talked to and which was a pretty nice uh thing for him to do, since at the time, like, I had no one else that I've spoken to. So he really went out of his way. But at the same time, I've also talked to uh, Lisa Moretti, who's on Blackjack Brawl, you know, the WWE's Ivory, Uh, Missy Hyatt, Larry Zbysko, Nikolai Volkov when he was alive, Colonel De Beers, and at the same time, I've also spoken to people who maybe you didn't hear a lot about... um, uh, People like Bruce Owens, who is a UWF referee, uh, Joe Ponce, who is uh, part of the UWF security. Uh, these, these, it, it, I just tried to run the gamut of anyone that may have had some sort of connection uh, to him. And some of the best stories sometimes have been from people that you wouldn't expect, like Mad Mad Pondo. Only did like one show, but at the same time, he had this incredible story to tell about that one show. So it's a lot about a well, lot like uh, finding a needle in
0: a haystack sometimes. And you've been using, you know, of course, it's a great source, uh, you know, well, you know, you got to kind of get through the, the week from chaff, but you've, you've documented the ups and downs of, of, of your project uh, on social media. Now, let's talk about how important that that uh, avenue is as far as like, you know, networking. And I, I've done that a lot through the years here with the radio program where I, I've met uh, guys through one connection goes to another connection, but just how important was you know social media in regards to uh, putting this together? I mean, your the Facebook page about the book project is a, a pretty good way to check out uh, some of the stuff that you've been you've been uh, working on through the years.
1: Yeah, it's it's been a nice um, sort of um, something that a lot that uh, I could point to and kind of show some of these wrestlers I'm not just some you know lunatic writing. Requesting interviews for you know no good reason or trying to find personal information about them that I have something that they can check out and look over. Now at the same time, it's been sometimes it's been good and sometimes it's been bad having that social media there because sometimes I can sometimes I get very frustrated uh, writing this, but at the same time, uh, there have been things like I've had. Interviews that I would never have phoned otherwise. Like Dave Perry, who wrestled uh, sort of in the later uh, part of 91 and 92 with the UWF, um, his his, uh, niece actually just wrote something on the page, and I was able to talk to her through Facebook then, who I would have never known otherwise. And suddenly you get, you know, this interview, and that's been a very big positive uh and at the same time it's like I said before it's being able to show people that you're you know you're really doing something you you, you're showing progress and it's not just you know again just anything that you just kind of just you know that you're showing that you have some sort of passion for it and that you're actually doing it.
0: Yeah, some sort of legitimacy to, to kind of what you're putting together because, again, like you mentioned, there's a lot of you know ups and downs in the world of social media and to, to, to be legit and to have something like your page and to be able to make these connections and to prove to, to, to more people, you know, creating this telephone effect that, yes, this is a legit thing. We I'd really love to hear your, uh, your take on your time uh, with uh, the Universal Wrestling Federation, so... Yeah, it it, it, it's really interesting. I mean, like I I've had a lot of success, uh, you know, finding and talking with people online, but. Yeah, and, and that's probably where I first discovered, you know, a lot of the stuff that you, you've been working on through that uh, Facebook page uh, about, the, about the book here, The Book Project, and one of the things I saw, it wasn't too long ago, it's uh, on one of your posts, you know, you talk about people that, you know, aren't necessarily the big main event stars, you know, a lot of the behind-the-scenes people, a lot of the, the wrestlers that, you know, may have worked enhancement or may have worked a few shows. I, I saw one that kind of has local ties because he went to college at the University of of North Dakota, which is only maybe an hour and change here from where uh, we we broadcast Rasslin' Memories, was uh, Randy Gust. And Randy Gust was uh, on a a show that really has I don't know has sort of a uh, sort of a, a bit of an infamous uh, sort of tone to it because it uh, you it, I've seen it online on YouTube. Uh, there's some footage of it. I, I, I'm talking about when they went to the North Dakota State Fair when they worked uh, a show at the Minot State College. But yeah, Randy Gus, talk about a name from the past like that. I mean, not a lot of people would remember it. Say outside of this uh, regional area up here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he was sort of an interesting one. Um, I I found his email on the on one of these people finder pages and a lot of the times when you find these emails or these telephone numbers or these addresses they're completely sort of they're out of date like no one's checking them and it's from many many years ago but randy Gus was one of those ones that i was able to um write and just so happens that he still used the email and he he too when i phoned him he asked me like how the heck did you find me because uh, he's not a big kind of internet type of person. But, yeah, yeah. Randy Gus was part of the uh, North Dakota show, and another sort of Minnesota connection to the UWF, along with, you know, Al Burke and Todd Becker and um, Jim Runzel. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, Randy Guss uh, had, you know, one show. He had, I think, one match, maybe two. And uh, he just kind of, you know, was able to talk to me and kind of, told me a little bit about (laughs) meeting her bedrooms and the payoffs and everything like that.
0: Yeah, and that one has always like fascinated me because when when you think about it, you take yourself back, and it was only uh, twenty five years ago. But again, you, you got to consider it was North Dakota. When you think about how what a strong, kind of conservative, very uh, wholesome uh, sort of state, uh, and having a guy like uh, Herb Abrams to be able to uh, book such a show, especially uh, centering you know, around the Minnesota or the uh, North Dakota State Fair, pardon me, uh, that that to me was uh, kind of amusing in and of itself, and and. Uh, and the stuff that I've watched that that has been on YouTube of that show and some of the events that are uh, surrounding it, like Stevie Ray at the uh, North Dakota State Fair or the press conference they did uh, about the show. I mean, it, it just fascinates me that how Herb Abrams and his crew uh, were able to get into North Dakota because, like I said, North Dakota was very, very, very conservative at that time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would like to be able to tell you kind of how they were able to... Or why they decide to go to Minot, North Dakota? I actually haven't found that out, but it was definitely a a complete disaster to put as well as you you know as as nicely as you can put it. It was a completely just horrible show. By that time, they had been off of uh, Sports Channel America. They were on Prime Ticket. They did not have the sort of funding to the television channel Sports Channel America that they had before. So the production was much worse than it had been in the past and that was the first and only show that Zug's Rift booked, um and he was sort of a avant garde musician and it 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 wasn't the greatest of shows and it, it it just seemed to be as to kind of put it in this perspective, Zug's Rift once said that there were more cows than people uh there. So it 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 was a complete Sort of disaster, and the show, and the matches never aired anyway. It, it was just sort of a complete uh, money loss for them. So mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And what you what you've seen is basically have you seen the, the stuff that has has surfaced on YouTube of of that 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 taping that uh, kind of went bust from North Dakota?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I was actually I I was the one who kind of uh, phoned the person who actually had like the one copy online, and then it just sort of when I. Gave it to someone else. It kind of just sort of ended up on the internet. But yeah, I I'd seen it. I actually have you know a copy myself. So yeah,
0: yeah, just to see that and uh, you know listen to some of the announcing. I mean, it, do you want to talk about a fish out of water? Just seeing John Tolos, the Golden Greek, doing announcing and some of his off color stuff when the mics were still on was a uh, was amusing. And uh, well, I don't think it would pass in these very very sensitive political, politically correct times.
1: No, and the thing about it too is that John Tollis, a lot of that stuff that was shown on T V, even the stuff that was on at the very beginning in, in nineteen ninety, um, from the, the California shows, uh, some of the stuff that they were able to sort of get away with it it's incredible to watch now. Like there was a, a promo in uh nineteen ninety and John Tullis was managing this guy called the Boney Hunter. Uh and the whole idea was that John Tullis was going to bring the Boney Hunter and he was going to wrestle with Brian Blair, and then Brian Blair was going to beat the Boney Hunter and then sort of um, sort of get rid of him and sort of uh, sort of stop the Boney Hunter from being sort of in the uh, sort of stable of John Tullis. And so Brian Blair beats the Boney Hunter, and John Tullis cuts his promo where he's like, you know, I hope the Boney Hunter... Puts a gun in his mouth and shoots himself because he's such a failure and, and, you know, he's a complete loser and stuff. A lot of that stuff, I mean, you obviously cannot get away with today. And especially when you watch stuff like the WWE, it's so slick and, uh, that it's, it, it, stuff like that could never get past, like, the sensors today. So watching it is really like watching, like, uh, uh, like a wrestling promotion without any sort of censorship whatsoever so yeah there's there's a ton of stuff like that, like one time colonel de Beers also he cut a promo on nelson Mandela, and you know I, obviously you can't you couldn't do that today even if you were trying to portray this sort of you know k uh, racist guy so yeah that's one of the the fun parts of watching the u w f is just to see what they were able to get away with. At
0: that time, mm-hmm. and let's go back a little bit and talk about the history of the UWF. I mean, when you know, some people hear the the, uh, the UWF, those letters in the Universal Wrestling Federation. There's a, a little bit of initial confusion, of course, uh, with Bill Watts's territory. So it seems like anybody who ever mentions uh, Universal Wrestling Federation, they always have to put in either Herb Abrams or, or Bill Watts. Let's talk about how Herb got into the, the wrestling business uh, in 1990, and how how was he able to to manage to get you know be able to use those those letters i mean do you be able to use the universal wrestling federation considering that bill watts uh had, had really uh had that until he sold off of course uh, to uh um to crockett uh, how how did how did that all come about uh, was there just a loophole that was there something that wasn't uh, bought in regards to licenses what was the deal with that in, in, in the uwf
1: from what i was told uh uh they actually came up with and this is from Jack Armstrong who is uh, a part of the receiver shows at the very beginning was that the UWF they had come up with the, the initials UWF Universal Wrestling Federation and they had no idea like that it had been used before so what i guess it was just not you know copyrighted or trademarked or anything so they decided that they were just going to use those initials and i mean it it seems like since since then anyway there 's been a ton of u w f so it's, it's not really i don 't think it was ever really a legal problem uh just because it was probably used so much um after that anyway so yeah i it, i you know I, I just think that you know they, there might have been something there where they were trying to uh get some notoriety off those you know those initials but it it seems to me like it was like not that much of a concern at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. And, of course, now, you know, things have just really ramped up in regards to trademarks, you know, and to think if you would have, uh, if the UWF would have been able to kind of get off the ground, that probably would have been a problem down the road. Of course, you know, with the WWF dealing with the World Wildlife Fund, I mean, it's a different thing, but, you mean, that's another situation with the similar letter situation. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Like I said before, it it just, it, it didn't seem like it was much of a problem or anything that they had to deal with I mean, he actually Abrams was still using the uh the trademark uh the, the sort of the UWF long after like it had uh you know passed uh you know after the copyright or whatever had passed so he himself was kind of using it without permission I guess or or without the legalities of it so mm-hmm. yeah
0: I want to, yeah, and, and talk about some of this talent that, you know, when they first uh, rolled out these tapings uh, that ended up in Reseda, I mean, it, it, there had to be a few bucks involved because a lot of these guys, when, I, when you look at, uh, you know, the star power that was on this taping, there was a lot of guys that, you know, it was a good place to go if it wasn't... Uh, you know if they were just leaving the WWF or had their past glory or some people that were on the independence, I mean when you, you know get the case of Mick Foley, who was a well traveled as cactus Jack at the time, but how were they able to get all of this this talent secured because I mean when you look at this TV taping they had there was a lot of star power with these UWF shows I mean uh, especially to get the ball rolling in 90 in Reseda at the Country Club
1: yeah that was the, that was the whole sort of plan was the sort of Get these guys in between um, these, uh, uh, you know, big time promotions or whatever, and they get whatever was available. Uh, Basically, how he got them was he had a sort of a connection with someone he was working with, who was sort of a producer and had been working in the, who had uh, worked on the NWA shows in California, and he was sort of a person that could uh, sort of contact other people and some of the bigger names and essentially what he did was he just he just threw a lot of money at him and he had a lot of money to begin with uh, but that was one of the downfalls of the UWF was that he got so much star power but it was because he was able to attract them with so much with so much money and that ultimately was one of the reasons why he sort of just his finances were drained at the end of it you know he he just, couldn't keep up with those names and that's why you, you, when you look at some of the later episodes they don't have the star power that they did at the beginning and that's just sort of you know how it happened.
0: mm-hmm when, yeah, I mean, it just couldn't have been financially uh, sustainable when you got all of these names. I mean, but again, you're, you're a company that wanted to make a big splash. And, you're, you know, by getting some of these name guys, that also creates interest, a, a bit of its own buzz. And also uh, finding uh, the television time, uh, getting a, a, a securing a TV deal. That that, that was also a very all-important, impor- uh, all all-encompassing thing when you think about it, too, because you need to have some names so you can get the TV, so you can maybe get some shows going uh Side of the television markets, so very much uh a case of you know it takes some it takes some spending to to get some uh attention and to get some things going especially uh, with pro wrestling companies and that's been proven time after time big and or small
1: mm mm-hmm. yeah and it it just seems to be it was it just it it wasn't enough it wasn't enough for a promotion on that size uh, uh, to bring in all those people and he she basically wanted to start out. Um, just taking on WWF, and there were a bunch of people at the time who told him that, you know, you're, you're never going to be able to catch up with Vince McMahon, and he, he just wanted immediately to have that splash, and like I said before, that kind of became his downfall. Now, if he hadn't done that route, if he would have gone to, done something like the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance where they had sort of big names, but at the same time, they you know had a lot of local uh, people at the time if he would have did something a little bit smaller, he might have not got as much of a splash, and he might not have not gotten on Sports Channel America. It was all about the people that he was able to attract. Um, but as I said again, it 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 just seems like any type of wrestling promotion, especially from that time, was destined to fail unless you were you know one of the big ones like WCW or WWF. So. Yeah, it it at the same time, what people kind of remember about it is what it you know was it's probably worst characteristic was that it just it was tried to be too big at a time when it just was too small in
0: actuality. That mm-hmm. uh, you totally nail that. This is uh, a wrestling memories then and now talking with Jonathan Plombon, uh, author uh, of an upcoming book about Herb Abrams and Herb Abrams Universal Wrestling Federation. We were talking about the earlier tapings uh, for the uh, first couple of months of the promotion that were at the Reseda Country Club. Uh, of course, lots of great named guys that were uh, uh, part of this. And one of the, you know, what and you also had, you know, aside from these big guys in the ring, there was also, uh, you know... You had Bruno San Martino involved with this project. You also had Lou Albano. So they were definitely, uh, you know, looking for guys that that would, would, would get that kick. And one of them, and it proved to be one of his final appearances in front of a camera, was Andre the Giant. So, boy, getting Andre the captain and Bruno San Martino, you, you'd swear you were in a time warp.
1: Yeah, it, it was. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with his sort of. Um, wanted to attack the WAF, like I said before, he really wanted to um, sort of take it on and at the time, Bruno Sammartino was having a very sort of public uh, disagreement with Vince McMahon um, Lou Obano too, had some sort of disagreement at that time and I think by, not only was it for him being able to accrue to sort of get these guys, at the same time, it it seemed like it was a way to sort of, like give a middle finger to Vince McMahon saying, I'm going to take these guys that you threw away that you don't like, uh, that you think is some sort of embarrassment, that they're dinosaurs, and I'm going to put them on and, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to do what you wouldn't do. Um, uh, The thing with Andre the Giant, too, I think was, because he was sort of in and out of the WWF at that time and nobody was going to tell Andre the Giant what to do and what not to do. So getting him, no matter how much you know, they had to pay him, which was an outrageous amount, uh, to get him to do that one show. It it seemed like it was this, just this way to sort of get at Vince McMahon. Which I mean, I don't know if it ever worked. I don't know if Vince McMahon ever cared or even heard about the UWF. But it it a lot of it was sort of like this, just vindictive attitude <laughs> towards the major promotions and. Yeah, and, and you know, you gotta give it up for him. He 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 picked out the biggest bully in the uh you know, playground and he went to hit him, you know, and he went to you know, start a fight and it didn't necessarily work but at the same time he was you know, you gotta give him credit for, you know, trying something that audacious.
0: Yeah, and he was also able to to get some tv too talk about uh, uh how they uh, got on tv uh, in those early days uh, in, in what became known as uh, the fury hour
1: yeah um basically uh herbie abrams was just a sort of master sort of talker he was able to sort of talk him talk you know into being able to do things when he was and you know when he was uh working uh, prior to that he was sort of in the clothing industry and he just made these sort of you know these he had this massive success in this, this clothing industry and he had sort of learned how to sort of um you know talk and and kind of coerce people into doing stuff and when he was uh when they were looking for a wrestling program on uh sports channel america he came in there and one thing that really impressed them was that these other promotions were coming in and the other, these other promoters were coming in and sort of talking to uh, the heads of um, Sports Channel America. But he came in with Paul Lorendorf and suddenly it seemed like he was in a different league completely. He had someone already who had been this big name who had been sort of away from wrestling for a little bit but still had this you know, credibility to him. And that's what kind of really got um, Sports Channel America interested and that's why they sort of picked him.
0: Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about, you know, they started the first initial tapings were out in Reseda, uh, California. Uh, In 91, uh, the UWF uh, shifted gears and moved tapings uh, for a few tapings in the better part of the year. Uh, down or over to New York City at the the Penta Hotel. Uh, what was uh, the reasoning for making that move to New York, and uh, w- what was it like, I guess, uh, to try to appeal to that crowd? Because you get a little bit more of a laid-back West Coast thing. You go to New York and uh, the East Coast area, whether it's New York or Philly or Boston, if you're not putting a good show on, they'll be a little more, uh, I guess, more vocal and, and sometimes could eat a, a wrestler alive. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I think the reason for New York City was that number one, it was he was born in Brooklyn, New York, so it was a, I think a big thing for him to go back and kind of show everyone that hey, you know, I've made it. I've, I'm putting on this humongous show across from Madison Square Garden. Um, also, it was I think because it was trying to be universal, he wanted to show people that he could go to a completely different market. He can go to the East Coast. And, and put on shows, and you know, I, I I guess that was sort of just you know the the sort of big uh, uh, point that he wanted to show everyone. Um, as for like the uh, the the crowds or whatever, I guess I never really saw them sort of the crowds sort of um, show any sort of difference between the Ricci shows um, by t- uh, taking on like cheering a different wrestler or anything, but it, it it didn't seem like that ever really factored in um, to any of the shows, like the crowd kind of changing or, or switching or, you know, a picking like a heel to cheer for instead of, the you know, the face or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know about that, but it it was definitely this way of kind of showing them that they could um, make it on both sides of the, you know, the U.S.
0: Mm-hmm. And one of the things that stands out, uh, you know, during that time at the hotel, Pennsylvania was an incident that of course is, you know, picked up steam and momentum. Uh, the story in time, uh, was about, uh, you know, the, the great, uh, television uh, taping incident where, uh, the, it was alleged that Herb uh, had paid off Dr. Death, uh, for uh, to attack uh, one Steve Ray during a match and to break his nose. Uh, I mean, of course, uh, Steve's told his story about it. But, yeah, that was definitely one of those things, uh, another way, I guess, for, for Herb to get some uh, hype uh, generated, uh, especially within the wrestling community, of course, with, with uh, the dirt sheets and the like, of course. I don't think he was really ever known to have a great relationship with the Meltzers of the world.
1: No, um, I think from the very beginning, he... Uh this is, of course, that infamous part, uh, the infamous match, the first one that was ever shown on UWF television, which was uh, Adam Michaels, who portrayed Davy Meltzer and got squashed by Steve Williams. Um, yeah, and there were different stories, too. I, I've found uh, conflicting stories about what exactly happened there. Um, and all of those are going to be documented in the book. Everybody's sort of uh, perspective and their memories of that. Uh, it was definitely one of the things that people sort of remembered about the UWF. And and at the time, that was a big sort of thing among the tape traders, too, was that Madman Ponda was talking to me about this, about how he had... That was a big selling point, that he had this copy of the show where Steve Williams beat up Steve Ray. And he would get, you know, all these offers for these other, you know, tapes or whatever. So, yeah, that's pretty much the one thing that people... Other than Herb Abrams himself and the, the sort of the death that people kind of remember, um, it's definitely you know definitely not as slick as you know WWF would be now um, to have something like that and to air it on television. It's it was definitely a different time and UWF was definitely a different type of promotion. Yeah.
0: Well, now the company is barely a year into its existence and they they eventually get into the pay-per-view market. But first, the UWF moves and tries a different area to record and do TV tapings. Let's talk about how they made the migration down to Florida in, what was it, in April of 91. They did some shows, of course, in Fort Lauderdale and a big taping in Universal Studios now. Universal Studios, of course, in, in recent years had been known uh, for being in the home of Impact Wrestling, and they've done other other things as well. Uh, uh, after uh, before this, uh. but let's talk a little bit about uh, getting down to Florida and, and getting a deal at Universal Studios, which is you know a, definitely a good place to uh, try to draw if if you're uh, promoting it right. But let's talk a little bit about that experiment, and then we'll lead into the the pay per view.
1: Well. It, it again. I think it was just another one of those ideas that we need to expand into a different market, and we need to try to you know get a hold on something else. Um, of course, Brian Blair was a, a big. Uh, uh, he's from Florida, and he obviously was able to probably kind of convince them, or to at least show that he has enough knowledge of that market to be able to put on a good show. The Universal uh, Studios was they, they weren't actually the first uh, promotion. To work at universal Studios, there had been other ones before that, but they managed to get in from um a previous um employee of the u w f and that person was able to connect them to the universal wrestling federation and or to the universal studios and it 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 wasn't like it wasn't a profitable show they didn't really make any money off the tickets or anything not that they ever did but they also, you know, it was outside, and it was apparently extremely hot, and everyone was pretty much sort of miserable having to be out there. Um, yeah, and I, I think they were planning on putting the UWF, the pay-per-view down there, so they were just trying to sort of um, claim their territory down there at the time. Um, it, You know, it... Like everything else, like I was talking before about like the different venues and stuff, that was another one that sort of stayed with me. Was watching the UWF, and all of a sudden, you see Nickelodeon Studios in the background and everything. It, it sort of stayed with me at the same time. Like a lot of people look at that now and they kind of laugh, but you know, it 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 was trying to do anything to sort of get into sort of a more of a a mainstream market and you know, kinda of show that they were affiliated with these sort of, you know, big name sort of I don't know, companies or whatever. So I mean it was sort of a it was sort of a mess, but at the same time, like every show was like that, but, you know.
0: And now we lead up to beach brawl and, uh, you know, getting into the pay-per-view market. Again, another uh, major, major risk going in, uh, you know, and uh, there's a lot of money that can be made in in the world of pay-per-view. But let's uh, kind of talk a little bit about... Getting you know, getting into the pay per view world again. This is the story of a promotion one year, barely one year in, almost a year into, and they're already trying to take on the pay per view uh, world. And let's talk about the the uh, the Beach Brawl in Palmetto, Florida. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they, again, this is another show that had some great great uh, workers on the card, but. And in trying to get some, and generate interest and get get a little again that sizzle, it wasn't quite uh, what it worked out to be in the end, as far as buy rates and and, and even attendance uh, fully in that arena that night uh, down in Palmetto.
1: Yeah, you know the Beach Pro wasn't necessarily a bad show. Um, looking at it now and kind of comparing it to the sort of current products out there. It's you know it's it's not necessarily a pay per view that other people would be sort of interested now if WWF put something out like that, but at the time it you know they they tried it. Um, It wasn't necessarily Herb Abrams' idea either. Um, There was a lot of other people sort of pushing him to do it. Um, So if it hadn't been for that pressure from I don't know the television station or the television channels and stuff like that, he. might have never done it but at the same time you know it it's impressive that he was able to get on the pay-per-view at the time when there weren't a lot of pay-per-views but you know everything i mean that was just a complete mess you know i think it drew like 550 people or something at the manatee civic center had the lowest buy rate at that time and even there their wrestlers that no show would at the you know at the last second and everything and people were complaining because it was 14.95 and it only ran two hours while their wrestling promotions ran their pay-per-views at you know three hours um but at the same time when you look back on it 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 was a mess just because the Terry Gordy Johnny Ace match went too long and all the other matches after that had to kind of be cut which is why Bob Backlund and Ivan Koloff went you know two minutes or whatever but at the same time there was there was you know, good matches on that card. You know, the Killer Bees and the versus the Power Twins, uh, Brian Blair and Jim Brunzel, They're always very sort of competent, and uh, you could be relied on for a good match with them. And Steve Williams and Bam Bam Bigelow had the you know the big match at the end, which got good reviews. Um, even in the like Wrestling Observer, I think they gave it three and a half stars, which was a lot different than the rest of the. You know, they obviously they never got. You know, any four-star matches or anything um, as good as that match on the, you know, on the remainder of the show. But they were able to, in some ways, impress uh, the people and sort of the dirt cheat writers or whatever that they were able to put on a good match at the end. But it, you know, no one was going to buy it, and there was there's controversy surrounding both people who markets that they weren't be able to get in on, and there were, you know, there were these. Sort of controversial statements or these conspiracy theories that you know WWF was trying to block pay per views and stuff like that. You know, I don't know about that, but it, it 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 seemed like it it showed when in the actual tapings that you know it wasn't the cleanest of, of shows. It wasn't the the type of matches that you know should when uh you know that you know they weren't as uh uh. uh I don't know. As, as good as they probably would have been on a different wrestling promotion, but you know, at the same time, you were able to sort of watch it, and it was sort of like a reality show that you could watch it and see these people put on this pay-per-view, who really had no idea how to really put on a pay-per-view, and just sort of see what happens.
0: Mm. Now, post a uh, uh, pay-per-view. Did it really? Things start to get a little bit tightened as far as budget goes, because when you start to look at some of the shows that came out post uh, post that that, that, that pay per view, uh, there were there were shows back in the east. uh, You know, these were cards that were filled more with local talent. And then in June of '92, there was a a taping. uh, You talk about guys uh, that weren't quite as uh, star quality, and how things started to decline as far as that went. But there was a taping in Spartanburg, which uh, featured guys you know uh, like your death row. 3260 uh, also pez watley was on it uh you, you had colonel red and jimmy valiant i mean you could definitely see a little bit of a tapering off of uh, uh of quality in regards to uh, those big stars i mean there were stars on there but it was really those sh- those shows and that tv taping were really kind of starting to show those uh, cracks in the in, in a foundation of uh, a very young young promotion
1: at the same time, someone like Colonel Red had been on the show he had actually managed Ivan Koloff um on the pay per view and on one of the uh, penta shows before that but yeah there was um it was it was filled with a lot more local talent after that point um for the next couple shows because it just wasn't it, it, it wasn't it didn't seem reasonable to be able to to fly some of these big names down to Florida or, you know, like Don Morocco, for instance, you know, they weren't going to fly him, you know, from Hawaii. I think that's where he he's stationed or whatever. And to bring him all the way into Florida, that would be way too expensive. And they had to start cutting costs. And at that time they had been off of uh, Sports Channel America and they were on prime ticket and they had to put shows together. And they just, it it was more like sort of a local Independent show at that point. You had the people like Dave Perry and Death Row Three Two Six Zero, and you know Barry Horowitz who was there from the. He he lived in Florida at the time too, um, and it was not to. I mean, those guys. they were a lot of, like good wrestlers. Uh, you know, Death Row Three Two Six Zero had was for a big guy was incredibly agile. He was on. He, he was an enhancement talent uh, a couple times on WCW. And these people like Dave Perry, who was incredibly talented too, but at the same time it it wasn't the u w f that started with it wasn't the stars the u w f um but i mean it, it was it was them at and at that point too that cancelled a number of wrestling shows everywhere, so the fact that they were able to just pull one off that one year because that was the only uh show that they were able to put on in ninety two it's kind of a, an achievement in itself because there was so much going on uh, personally with uh, Herb Abrams at the time, and and that's when the drug use really started to sort of interfere, and, um, you know, and it's starting to drain the finances and everything. So they weren't able to necessarily bring in a lot of these people, but some of the people like Bob Orton and stuff, they were they were sort of loyal to uh, Herb Abrams at that time. You know, they they were just doing independent shows and. You know, it, it. At the same time, they were able to have a you know big wrestlers at the time like Paul Orndorff and Bob Orton, uh, Jimmy Valiant, and all, all those other guys. Uh, but at the same time, it no, it didn't feel like the 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 promotion that was going to take on the world like it did when it started.
0: UWF was able to regroup and uh, put on what was to be their last really big show. It was the Blackjack Brawl. Now, uh, this was another one of those shows uh, they put together and, you know, it was kind of, a, kind of a train wreck. I'm putting it mildly. I've heard some behind-the-scenes stuff from from Stevie Ray uh, about this, uh, how it came together, how they were able to find money and, and dealing with the, the situation in Vegas and just trying to get the word out. And, you know, and you had just the show itself that didn't draw. I mean, when you're having 600 people at the MGM Grand, that kind of looks... You know, the the, the optics, the, the cosmetics, it doesn't look good. But let's talk about that. That last show, I mean, it was kind of that, that last gasp. I mean, you had some names on there. You your Danny Spiveys, your Missy Hyatts, and your Johnny Aces, along with Cactus Jack, and, of course, Steve Williams and Sid Vicious. But this, if it was a, a blaze of glory they were going to go out on, this was a little bit of a mixed bag.
1: Yeah, and uh, Abrams that night of the, uh, you know, the blackjack brawl was not in his best sort of mind. He was sort of, uh, he wasn't sober, I guess is one way you could put it. So not only that, but Zug's Rift at the time, who I'd spoken about before, who had booked the one show in um, Minnow, he had booked the entire blackjack brawl. I don't know necessarily all of those matches that he originally had on there, but uh, they had a disagreement, and Zug's Rift left, and Herb Abrams basically just, redid the entire show, and I think it kind of, I'm not sure if it shows his, sort of, the lack of talent he had in booking a show, or maybe his mind just wasn't in the right place, but the the actual, like, matches themselves were a bit of, sort of, a mess. The idea that, like, practically every match had a, a world, uh, not world title, but a title match associated with it. Um, you know, they had, like, the uh, uh, midget title, and the MGM Grand, and they didn't even have like a, a championship for a lot of these, you know, these these matches. But it, watching it now, like if you compare it to the Beach Brawl, the Beach Brawl um, was kind of a slower show, but it there was still some good wrestling on there. You could still see it on the Blackjack Brawl. Everything was just this complete mess, and you would hear, you know, uh, you know, Herb Abrams, you know, saying these sort of these racial slurs, you know. Right on television and 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 blackjack uh mulligan was there, and you know he obviously wasn't in his best mind either so the fact that you have this kind of this this sort of wonderful this supernova this explosion at the very end um watching it now is an it's an incredible experience uh i I don't know how else to kind of put it that way i mean there's even the talk like some of the you know, the results, like Cactus Jack and Jimmy Snuka uh, going for a double condo in a lumberjack match is just...
0: Amazing. You
1: look at that, and you have, like, you're like, well, who thought of that? You know, and it, it's one way to, like, you know, protect both participants and everything. Um, and the original uh, main event of that show was going to be the way Zook's Rift wanted. It, it was going to be Steve Williams versus Terry Funk, and I think, like, no disrespect to Sid Vicious, but I think it would have been a little bit better match with uh, Terry Funk in there, but they didn't want to, but Herb Abrams didn't want to pay Terry Funk what he was asking. Um, but, yeah, and and some of the, and if you're able to check out the, the full blackjack brawl, not the one that was sort of um, cut down on uh, future uh, uh, replays of the show on Sports Channel America, it, there's a lot of just, certain things like not being like there's you can hear the sort of the commentators sort of talk to each other um after you know they're supposed to be cut off and everything and again it wasn't the smoothest it wasn't the sort of the the polished show that you would see now but at the same time you know it those train wrecks sometimes in wrestling are just some of the best things to watch I mean I hate to put it that way but it's it's Definitely made its mark, and it's definitely memorable. I mean there are a lot of shows that a lot of people and a lot of independent shows that people put on over the years you know, and a lot of them we don't remember, but at the same time when someone someone fails that you know in such a beautiful fashion like that, you know you remember it and and I think and you know if herb Abrams was alive today. You might think that maybe he would be sort of proud of that, that he was able to put on something that people remember, as opposed to something that just sort of, you know, was forgotten about, except for, you know, some wrestling, you know, enthusiast someplace.
0: Mm Mm-hmm and we're talking about towards the end uh, of the UWF run. There was a a brief uh, appearance on ESPN2 where it was uh, repackaged to a half hour, and those episodes uh, resurfaced again in 2008, so it was kind of a a little bit of a blast from the past. You can see some of those shows uh, whittled down to half-hour form, but it wasn't too much longer after they secured that brief deal with ESPN2 that that Herb Abrams had passed away and... uh, Wow, if you want to talk about Blazes of Glory going out, Herb Herb, Herb went his way like the old song went.
1: Yeah, you know, apparently he was um, allegedly, you know, dressed in like a a diaper or something. I'm not sure about that, but he was, you know, running around in the UWF offices with uh, a couple prostitutes and high on cocaine and just, you know, running around trashing the place and the uh, the prostitutes were actually the ones that actually called the 911 after he started to, you know, when things started to get really crazy. And, you know, the police come and they put him in the back of the, uh, the you know, police car and, you know, he has a heart attack in the back. And, yeah, I mean, he, he went out in such, like you said before, like a, a blaze of glory. It's, it's a fitting end, although it's, at the same time, it's a very sad end to someone who wanted to be taken so seriously in the wrestling business, and he wanted to take on Vince McMahon. And his last sort of, you know, you know, you what know, people' last memory of him was going to be—him sort of, you know, with these prostitutes in the UWF offices—and uh, but, you know, it's 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 stuff like that is it's kind of funny when you take it out of context but it's it's also a, a kind of a sad story when you put everything together and man you know it for someone who had so much ambition it's it's kind of sad that he was never able to figure it out um that the drug just took hold of him and he you know he was an incredibly brilliant guy he, was, he had a incredible mind for business which is why was so successful early you know early in his life and for him to you know go down in that way i mean it, it it's it you, you make you you wonder what he would have done had he not had that uh, he had you know he had a clear mind and everything so at the same time it's it's sort of entertaining but the, in another way completely it's just kind of really a sad sort of end to what was kind of a sad life.
0: Mm-hmm. As we are getting close uh, to wrapping up here today, uh, you know, what was left behind uh, as far as the UWF? Uh, I guess uh, you know, people have their own opinions on it in regards to uh, what happened with the, the tape library and who ended up uh, in possession of that.
1: Yeah, you know, I <laughs> that's something that I really don't like to sort of put my two cents in. Um, all I know is that uh, at sort of the end of the UWF, um, Herb Abrams uh, gave, he, Herb Abrams had to go and take care of his mother, who at the same time, at, the, at that time was um, ill, and he gave the sort of the um, permission to run shows for the UWF to El Burke and, uh, you know, be able to uh, use the video catalog and everything. And then Herb Abrams passes away, so L. Burke has the, you know, the the entire library, and he just sort of, you know, went ahead and tried to license it as much as he could. Um, there are other people, and I, I understand why other people would be sort of miffed about that, um, not being able to, um, you know, not gain royalties from those shows, Um you know, it, it it differs depending on the person you talk to. Um, Chris Michaels, who had uh, uh, wrestled in the UWF in 1991 for a couple shows in the Penta, um, he he was he, you know, he was one of those guys who thought when he read about that, about the Steve Ray deal and everything, he's like, well, you know, that you go into wrestling knowing that you shouldn't, you know, that you're not gonna get royalties out those programs if you're just a wrestler. But at the same time, there are people like you know Sunny Beach and Steve Ray who have legitimate concerns about that stuff, um, about who owns the the tape library. I, when it comes down to it, I I think too we have to understand just you know what exactly is this worth. I mean, are there a lot of people who are dying to see these shows? with it if it was put on the, a DVD would a lot of people buy it? Is you know you. Albert Burke told me when uh, a few years ago that you know it's just the the opportunities to license that footage is, they're becoming sort of less and less frequent. So I mean I don't know how much anyone would get off those get those shows you know for how much people would make off those shows anyway if they had the the permission to license it off. Um, yeah, I mean like I said I don't like I I like a lot of the people who are. Serve on both sides of this, so I really can't put it either way. But I understand both sides at the same
0: time. Well, it's better to take that Switzerland stance on, on an issue like that. Now, before now, it's uh, about time for us to wrap up the show. I just wanted, uh one more little thing about your your book. Uh, where are you at as far as uh, progress wise on the book? Uh, what are you thinking about in regards to if uh, you have you talk with any publishers? Are you going to go the self publishing route? What what's going on with the book?
1: Um. Well, I, I I I tried for uh, ECW Press. ECW Press was my sort of the, my dream one. Um, not to knock any of the other ones, but uh, like the Death of WCW is like my favorite book of all time, and I wanted to be sort of in that league. Um, but they passed on it, and I tried another one, but I never really heard back. It's it's very important to me to find a, a publisher, just because it, just for how much time I spent on this thing which is, like, eight years at this point. Um, but if I have to, like, I, I will go down the self-publishing route just because there's so many people that want to read this. I, I would, to just, like, not release it at all just because I can't find a publisher, I think would be uh, sort of a mean thing to do or sort of a a, a thing that I probably shouldn't do. Um, but as of right now, like, I just decided to start writing it in, I think I'm up to, I don't know, 95 pages or whatever, which um, would be okay, but I'm like 11 chapters into 37 chapters, so at this time, I'm a little... It might get a little overwhelming with the content, so I'm trying to figure out, you know, how much I want to put in and how much I want to take out. And, of course, if I find a publisher, then they're probably going to want to... They, they're they going to have their own view of what they can sell and everything. So... Mm-hmm. um I'm hoping to get a publisher. I'm going to keep trying, but at the you know, if I can't, I'll I'll get it out there somehow.
0: Yes, and and for more info uh, for people who are interested uh, in the book and tracking the progress, what was the name of your Facebook page again?
1: Uh, right now, it doesn't have like a, a title or anything. But if you go on Facebook and you look up uh, UWF and Herb Abrams the Book Project, um, you should be able to uh, go right to it and find it, and you can. Uh, read all the the people who were interviewed and um the progress i make and anything else that i seem to find worthy enough to post
0: oh it's been a a very quick moving hour here i, I do definitely thank you for taking some time out uh is there anything before we uh we part today uh jonathan Blombond, uh that you'd like to uh get across
1: no just uh thank you for having me and i haven't done a lot of these interviews so um Anyone who was able to uh, sit through the whole thing of me stuttering, I just want to apologize and, and thank everyone. So,
0: oh, I think I think it went well. For Jonathan right. Plombond, uh, I'm Glenn Broggett. You've been listening to Rastlin Memories, Then and Now.